If you guys are new here today, I want to welcome you to the church. We are a new church plant fairly. We're going to have our second year anniversary on January 10th, and we're excited about that. I need a microphone stand. There we go for the reading mic. Yeah. Should I use this one? So yeah, so we're, uh, so as you can tell, like we're not very polished, but that's okay because we're not here to put on a show. We're here to exalt the name of Jesus. And we're okay with that. All right, I'm going to have the readers stand on this side of the stage today. The camera will, Keaton, can the camera see this? No, 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 you don't have to move it. Your dad's going to kill us. I'll put it over here. All right. This has just been one of those weeks, you know, like there's never a dull moment, life in Alaska. Anybody get stuck in their neighborhood this week? Yeah, unfortunately. Anybody have to help another person get unstuck this week that they were stuck? (laughs) Yeah, we had Josh, our youth minister. He got injured helping somebody. These are, these are exciting times in Anchorage, Alaska, when you go to sleep and there's no snow on the ground, and you wake up and you're post-holing hip deep. You're like, what is going on? You know, so we, I know that with the weather and the holidays coming up, coming to church can sometimes feel like a chore. So I just want to tell everybody that I'm really excited to see y'all here, because what you did was you prioritized the fellowship of the saints. And that's an important thing to do because as spirit-filled believers, we all have a role to play in the service today. God is going to use you. You're just unaware of how he's going to use you. But your spiritual gifts will be put into play today at some point throughout the service. And it'll most likely happen in conversation with somebody after the service as we discuss what our past week looked like, what the upcoming week, we, what we expect, and what we thought of the sermon. These are all good things that are going to create opportunities for God to put our spiritual gifts into play as we gather today in fellowship. And like I was saying, it, it, sometimes it feels like a chore. You know, a ton of people in the body are sick right now. We need to be praying for the health of individuals. I know Lacey's here. She's a, been feeling under the weather since she got back from her travels. I know Jeremiah is recovering from influenza. And there's just some crazy bug that's going throughout the city. So for the, again, for those of you who are here today, um, you guys did the right thing. You put the good foot forward and you said, Lord, I'm going to be obedient And we would expect that God would bless that act of obedience. We don't know what that blessing is going to look like, but whatever form God uh, desires to deliver it in, we will say yes and amen. Now, I'm excited to preach this morning's sermon. And I was telling my, my wife this morning that this is one of those sermons that's either going to pass or fail. There's no middle ground. You know, as I was preparing the sermon, I was like, Lord, is this actually the direction that you want me to take? And he was like, well, you're the one who decided to save the last three verses in the letter of 1 Peter and want to do a whole sermon on it. And I was like, yeah, I did. I I did that because I really felt like that's what God wanted me to do. And if God wanted me to do that, then guess what? This morning, we get to do that together. This morning's sermon is designed in its nature to help us fall in love with the text of Scripture. 
This morning's sermon, our Bible study, is designed to help us fall in love with the people who produced the text of the Scripture. How many of us know the two greatest commands? The two that all of the law and all of the prophets hang on. What is it? Love God, love people, right? That's the summary statement of the two greatest commands. How can we, church, how can we claim to love God and love people if we don't know the people in His Word? We can't actually say, Lord, Your Word have I hid in my heart. Your Word, I love Your Word, when we don't know the people in the Word. You can't love people that you don't know. Love requires relationship. And so this morning's sermon is designed to bring us to, to a place where we can stoke the flame of the fire in our hearts that, have been, that has been put there by the Holy Spirit himself in regard to loving God's word, loving the people of his word. Let's go even a step further and say, loving to learn the layout of the geography in the land. How many people want to know the places where Jesus walked and talked? I do. How many of the people want to be familiar with the places where Israel went into exile? I do. Because God redeemed Israel and he rescued Israel out of exile and he brought them back to Zion. How many have that expectation that God's going to take us out of exile knowing that this place is not our home and one day deliver us into a place where we will be eternally with him forever? Is that the goal? Yeah. Do we get excited about this stuff? Or is this just one of those things that we're like, oh man, the preacher's going off again. No, this is what we live for. This is the heart of the gospel. Redemption. Being rescued. Being reconciled. Being transformed. And looking forward to being glorified. That's it. And so this sermon this morning is designed to do that. We're going to be closing out our series in 1 Peter. 26 weeks in the book of 1 Peter. And we're finally bringing it to a close. So with that being said, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're looking for verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, Raise your hand, and we'll give you one free of charge. You can take it home with you today. For those of you who don't have a Bible and don't want a Bible, but you want to follow along, the text will be on the screen. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Peter begins in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The whole point of this morning's sermon, my hope for us, church, is that we would learn to love an author's closing remarks. Why would that be the goal of this morning, and why would that be my hope? Well, I would pray that we would consider these words to be as valuable as the wisdom literature. 
Do we consider what we just read to be as valuable as the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies declare his handiwork? Do we strive to memorize portions of the text like this, like we strive to memorize Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, he did it all. (laughs) He created the heavens and the earth. Do we strive to lock into our heart and our minds portions of the text like this, like Revelation, where we read, Come, Lord Jesus. Or do we see in the epistle a final greeting and think, This doesn't matter. How do we think about the text, church? My hope is that we would come to believe, not just believe, but embrace the claim that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do we believe that? Do we live our lives like we embrace that reality that God has given us all things? All things necessary so that we might live a life worthy of the call that God has placed on us. It's my hope that we would take that very claim and place within that claim the letter's final greeting. All of the letter's final greetings. Saints, when we look at these three verses, we should be asking ourselves, no different than when we look at any other portion of the text, what do I see? What do I hear when the text is being read aloud? How is the Spirit of God moving in me as I meditate on this passage? Now there's two ways that we can answer this question. We could assess it from the macro perspective, taking what we see and viewing it in light of the entire letter or viewing it in light of the entire text, or we could look at it from the micro perspective and we could assess it line by line, what Isaiah would say, precept upon precept. And that's normally how we study the word around here. We always go line by line, sometimes word by word, making sure that we don't miss a thing. Before we attempt to assess it from the micro, let's attempt to assess it from the macro. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes gives us this wonderful outline, this side-by-side analysis. And when we look at this side-by-side analysis, we can see that the strategy of Peter, our letter's author, is no different in the closing remarks than it is in the opening remarks. If you have your Bibles and you look at 1 Peter, you can see that Karen is correct. Lots of New Testament scholars agree with her when they write that Peter has formed an inclusio. He has shown that his vision and his message for the church is consistent from beginning to end. He's book-ended it. He's taken it, what we would say in modernity, and he's wrapped it up nicely like a gift, and he's put a bow on top of it and just said, here, it's yours. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of the dispersion. Peter, to the chosen in the diaspora. May peace be multiplied to you. We turn in our Bibles to the end, 
And we see that Peter writes something very similar. I, Peter, have written briefly to you. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Every word, Jesus, the master, would say, every jaw and tittle is vital to the life of the believer. Now we've looked at it on the macro level. End to end, we included the words of the master. Let's look at it on the micro. Remember, we're asking the question, what do we see? Let's go to the next slide. When I take a look at this, I see something that I have not seen in the letter before. I see what could potentially be a reference to three people. Maybe we should say that we see two individuals in a potential group of people. What do you guys think? How many of us have been reading the letter throughout the last 26 weeks? Has anybody seen Peter address anybody by their proper name? Not up until this point. Things like that should stand out to us. We have to ask ourselves, do we know these people? Better yet, we have to ask ourselves, do we even care to know these people? I mean, they sound pretty important to Peter. Sylvanus, a faithful brother. Mark, my son, she who is chosen. They sound important to our author. And if they're important to our author, it probably implies that they're important to the original audience. Well, if we say that the text was written to them, but it's for us, the question bears. Do we even care to know who these people are? We should care. <laughs> when I look at these three verses, I don't just see a reference to three people. I see a purpose statement. Let's go to the next slide. Go back one. You don't have slide 99 in there? There you go. Give Jen a round of applause. She's doing graphics for the first time. It's not easy because I go off script a lot, so they have to be like, well, where is he doing? What is he doing? This is the purpose statement for Peter. I want us to have the visual as I'm speaking because for those of us who are kinesthetic learners, we learn better that way. Not everybody is an audible learner and processes audibly. Some people are visual and some people are tactile. They like to get their hands on things. So around here we would say, have your Bible in your hand, <laughs> look at the screens, and listen to what's being said. We're going to cover all of our bases. Here's Peter's purpose statement. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's a bold statement, everybody. That's a bold statement. Can the progressive Christian in today's culture and society agree with Peter that everything he's written 
from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 14, is the true grace of God? Or does the progressive believer have to deconstruct things that Peter have said? We're going to put that claim to the test today. Remember, we're looking at this on a micro level. We don't just see a reference to three people, and we don't just see a purpose statement. We see a geographical location. Does this geographical location that Peter makes mention of have any value? Maybe once we figure out who she is, then maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to figure out where she is located at. These things were important to Peter. They were important for him to mention. We're separated by over 2,000 years from the text of the New Testament. There's language barriers. Do we know that geography has shifted and borders are not the same as they were in Peter's day? Are we aware of what Peter is doing when he references Babylon? Or are we just going to come to the word like a fundamentalist and be like, read it literally? The Bible says what it says. You just better deal with it. We're going to deal with that too. Last question that I'm going to ask. We're going to be asking a lot of questions throughout our study, but this is the last question I'm going to ask in the introduction. I think it's an important one. Are we supposed to read this entire section of the letter with a wooden, literal, narrow lens? If we are... What are we supposed to do with this line? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. <laughs> I hear so many people in the church get on their soapbox. There's not a single line of doctrine in the text of Scripture that's not culturally bound. How many people were obedient this morning? When they walked into church today, according to the words of Peter. And we can go to Paul too if y'all want to talk. I'm just saying. Our mouths are constantly writing checks that our you-know-whats can't cash. <laughs> I heard some preacher say that. There's not a single thing in the text of the scripture that's culturally bound. And that sounds good. just want to read this verse with you, brother. And I want to ask you. And then the Greek scholars in the room are going to come in and they're going to be like, this in the Greek, Matthew, is not an imperative. It's not in the verb tense. I'm going to say, congratulations, you're correct. But New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner says, it's an injunction. An imperative and an injunction are English words. So let's go to the English definitions. You Google them, you look them up, and you put them side by side, and you tell me what's the difference. So often, the church is saying things and doing things that they don't substantiate in their own lives. Don't get mad when somebody just shines light on it. If you can't handle it when the preacher shines light on it, what do you think is going to happen when God shines light on all of it? 
I think these are good questions. I do. I want the church to think critically. We don't want to be a people that's been brainwashed. We don't want to be a people that's been indoctrinated. We want to be a people who are filled with the Spirit, who live in accordance with the will of God, who are led by the Spirit, who keep in step with the Spirit, and who ask the Spirit to teach them because we have one teacher. Call no man rabbi. What's the words of Jesus? Oh, we're going to get literal and wooden right now? Don't call me pastor. <laughs> it's your English translation right there. Oh, but there's roles and gifts and offices. Oh, so wait. <laughs> so you're opening the door to layers of ways to understand or interpret here. You are the one who may put their foot out there just hoping someone like me is going to come across along, step on it. See how you're going to respond. Somebody's going to press you. The training ground is here. Somebody is going to press you. So we train here so that we can fight out there. That's what we do. So having primed the pump for our mind, recognizing that these questions are good and that these questions need to be answered. Can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? Who is Sylvanus? That's a good answer. Messing with people in this church, they're going to clap back. I like it. Who is Sylvanus? And what does Peter mean when he refers to him as faithful brother? We're asking to define terminology here. To define phraseology here. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards notes that it's only now in the conclusion that Peter names anyone specifically and each name is only mentioned once. This means that if there's any hope to answer the questions who, we're going to have to go outside the letter. So we're no longer going to be reading vertically, internally to the letter. We're now going to be reading horizontally across the text of Scripture. We're going to have to because Peter doesn't give us any details. Remember, we're separated. We got some ground to gain, some distance to close if we want to have an understanding of who it is that Silas is and what Peter means when he refers to him as a faithful believer. So I'm going to need some help in accomplishing this mission. I'm going to need one person right now to volunteer to read who wants to do it. I heard Silas. All right, Silas, you've been voluntold by Mama. Acts chapter 15. Let's go back or... Okay. I need you to go to the next slide because both Katrina and Dasha have asked for the references to be on the screen when I bring people up to read because it's too hard to remember what I ask people to track with. 
Thank you, ladies, helping me be a better teacher. Silas, you're going to find Acts chapter 15. You're going to locate verse 22 and 23, verse 27 and verse 32. Once you locate that, I need you to come up here and stand on the stage. I'm going to set the context for what it is that Silas is about to read. He's in Acts chapter 15. This is a famous passage in the New Testament because it deals with the Jerusalem council. The Jerusalem council, by definition, is the church's first ecumenical council. The Gentiles and the missionaries who serve the Gentiles have come to Jerusalem because there's an issue. The issue is circumcision. You see, Paul and Barnabas are out in the Gentile world evangelizing, baptizing, teaching people to observe all that Christ has taught. And then some Jerusalem missionaries, some legalists, come behind them, and they're angry. Why would Paul and Barnabas not force these Gentile believers to get circumcised? Now, Paul and Barnabas, they clap back. And they're like, okay, look, we're going to settle the argument We are all going back to Jerusalem. We're going to call the apostles and the elders, the church leaders together, and we're going to have a council. And we're going to get to the bottom of this. Is circumcision via Mosaic legislation required for the salvation of the Gentiles? Long story short, the ecumenical council comes to the conclusion that it's not. But that's not good enough. How many of us know that when a council makes a decision, it has very little weight bearing on the field? (laughs) Right? So the council makes a very wise decision. They take parchment, and they all write a letter. This is the council. This is our conclusion. This is who was present, and they all sign it. And then they get scribes to copy it and copy it, and copy it. Now they're responsible to appoint leaders to take this message into the Gentile world. Why does this paper need to be dispersed into the Gentile world? Because inevitably, these same legalist missionaries are going to come back around, or new ones are going to go out, and they're going to say, yo, you need to get circumcised. And they're going to be able to produce the document from the Jerusalem council and be like, you preach another gospel. The Jerusalem council says, no, we don't need to be circumcised. They gave us four guidelines, guidelines that we're supposed to follow if we want to live lives that can be viewed as right relationship with God. So get your other gospel out of here. That's where we pick up. Go ahead, Silas. Acts chapter 15, verse 22 through 23. To the council. Is this my call? Let's see. Yeah, just speak real loud into it. To the council's letter to the Gentile believers, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called uh, Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter, quote, The brothers, both both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, and Cecilia, or Cilicia, greetings. That's good right there, brother. Hold what you got. Just wait right there. All right, so we've read two verses. We're trying to answer the question, who is Sylvanus? And thanks to Rob, we got a spoiler alert. Sylvanus is the Latinized interpretation of the Greek name Silas. 
I'm sure you know that because your name is Silas. So technically, we could call Silas Sylvanus. Please do. It's a pretty cool name. And it would be the same thing. Now, check this out. <clears throat> what have we learned? We've learned that it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders. Oh, there it is. The whole church. That it would be good to send Paul, Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. What does Luke call them? Leading men among the brothers. Silas is a leading man in the church at Jerusalem. He's a man of reputation. He's a man of renown. To send him with the following letter. This means he's a courier. He's going to carry the letter. And he's going to carry it and they give us three Gentile provinces. All of this was done in response to those who were troubling the church. Go ahead and read the next verse for us. Verse 27, please. We have sent therefore, or we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Oh, Luke just gave us more details. Silas is more than a courier. Silas is capable and able to retell and to answer the questions that are going to be produced when the document is delivered to the church. It says, we therefore send Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. This means that they can say, this is why the council met. This is how the council deliberated. And this was their decision. Oh, you have questions? Great, I was there. Let me answer them for you. So he's got a Latinized name in Peter's letter, but it is the same Greek name that Luke uses. And we've got a courier who's qualified to speak on matters of the letter that he holds in his hand. No different than Paul the Apostle himself. Let's keep reading. Verse 32. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Oh, so they didn't just touch on the letter for the, from the council. And what else did we learn about Silas? He's a prophet. The Spirit of God saw fit to give him a gift as he saw necessary. Silas operates in the prophetic. Not only that, but he's preaching and teaching here. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. Look right above that. After they had spent time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. We know that in verse 32, it says that Judas and Silas were themselves encouraging and strengthening the brothers with many words. Many words. Not just terse explanations of the letter. And if you study Acts, and you know how Luke writes, he summarizes all of the sermons. This is a massive amount of church history compiled into one little book. So if he's doing it with the sermons, you've got to ask yourself, is he doing it in other places? Thank you. You're good. Thank you, Sylvanus. All right, so here's what we've learned. We're going to cover what we've learned. We covered the name, a leading man in the early church, 
Someone who was sent out with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. He was more than a courier. He was a qualified speaker. And on top of his ability to speak, he was a prophet. Who is Silvanus? And what does Peter mean when he refers to him as a brother? That's the question that we're trying to answer. This is an important detail right here. He was sent out with Paul. Paul the Apostle who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Everyone says he wrote the majority of the New Testament and they're wrong. They're absolutely wrong. If you do a word count, it was Luke. He wrote more than Paul. Part one, the gospel according to Luke. Volume two, Acts according to the apostles. His word count supersedes the apostle Paul's, which means by definition, he wrote more. Another fun fact for the church that likes to stick their foot out there and wait for someone to come along and be like, oh, really? Is that, is that it? Oh, well, he wrote the most letters. Well, that's not what you said. <laughs> and words have meaning, don't they? <laughs> I love to trap people with their own arguments. <laughs> church, we got to think critically. There is a world out there that wants to destroy us. And Peter himself said that we are to be prepared to give a defense to give an apologia. Give your defense. And if you're not prepared, it's not on me. It's on you. God, another thing Peter says, is going to hold you responsible for all that you do. He's going to judge you according to what it is that you do. <laughs> now he traveled with the apostle Paul. This detail leads me to believe that there's more information available. Now, for the sake of time this morning, we're only going to look briefly at two other things before we move on. So I'm going to need two other volunteers to read. Who wants to do it? Tom, you want to do it? And Dasha, thank you. You guys are great readers. Let's have you guys come on up here. Y'all got me in the mood. Sorry, James. I'll get you next time. I got you in the mood. You guys got me in the mood with the voluntolling, so I figured I'd just do it. Tom, I need you to look up Acts chapter 15. Verse 37 through 40. Dosh, I need you to read Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 24. Look, before they speak, whatever. What did I say? <laughs> that's why they're up there, because I'm a human and I make mistakes. When you make a mistake, that's what it looks like. You own it. Hey, you know what? I actually didn't know that Luke wrote more than Paul. I was wrong. You were right. I stand corrected. Let's squash it. So that's a view on, on inspiration. That's a different view than I hold on inspiration. The human author is vital to my interpretation of the scripture. For Stephanie, it sounds like he's the end-all be-all. You know? And we have to hold that intention in this body. And I have to respect and honor that. And I would actually affirm that in a sense, you're right. And then I would say, for me, there's more ways that I would need to define that, you know? But there's no, there's no qualms. We have a lot that we agree and disagree on, right, Stephanie? And we come here week after week and we challenge one another to work through the text. Because it's not about being right. It's about knowing the truth. And when we have blind spots, like I have blind spots, you know who's going to point out my blind spots? Someone like Stephanie when she raised her hand and says, Matt, consider this. 
It doesn't matter if it's Luke or Paul because God is responsible. And I would say, amen. Amen. Let's remember that this is the word of God. All right? Text-driven. Art would stand up and he would say, I'm not a text-driven person. He would say, I'm a text-led person. We would have all different kinds of conversations in this church. And we embrace all of the challenges. So here's the deal. Setting the context very simply. Paul and Silas, Paul and Silvanus are on a missionary journey. Let's see what happens. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Thank you. So what have we learned? We've learned that Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement that caused a separation. Stephanie, may God never let the, de the devil drive a wedge between us because of the ways that we interpret or hold to the text. Let the Spirit of God strengthen our relationship in the spite of that, right? Amen. A sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas. Why would a sharp disagreement arise? Well, if we know the context of Acts, we can think about Acts chapter 11. Stephen has just been stoned, the church is being persecuted, and they're running from Jerusalem. But as they run, they're preaching the word of God everywhere they go, and people are getting saved. Now, Barnabas hears about this happening in Antioch, and he's like, dude, I heard that like, there's a Jesus movement going on in Antioch, so I'm going to go there. He goes there, and he's like, this is great. I need help managing this. Now, before Paul has any reputation as an apostle in the church, he says, I need to go find Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> So I'm going to travel to Tarsus, and I'm going to find Saul. I'm going to bring him here, and he's going to help me equip this church and build this church for the kingdom. They spent over a year there together doing that, Luke says. Can you imagine a fledgling church that needs good shepherding? All of the energy and time and investment that goes into that, and all the people who planted this church are saying, yep. And can you imagine that sharp disagreements arise between people, and some people say... I'm out of here. Screw you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, hopefully we respond like the brothers did. In the midst of your agreement, we're going to bless both of you and you go in the grace of God. That's right. That's right. It's not about being right. It's about knowing the truth. So a sharp disagreement. Imagine when Paul has to replace Barnabas. Imagine when Barnabas has to replace Paul. Don't you think they'd be looking for people of value? There it is. That's what he means when he says faithful brother. Paul was willing to replace Barnabas with Silas, a faithful brother. And they continued on and they strengthened the churches wherever they went, Luke says. Okay, Dasha, I need you to come up here and read Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 24. I have what? Uh, let me look at the text real quick. Yeah, 25 through 34. No, I need you to read 16. 16 through 24. I didn't change it on the slide. I made an edit. Again, I'm human. You guys can fire me. 
after the sermon. <laughs> 16, Acts, chapter 16, verse 16 through 24. Okay. Got it. Okay. Paul and Silas in prison. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that, they, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into inner, the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Thank you. So just in case somebody wanted to challenge my position or our position as a church on Silas being a faithful brother because we believe that Paul was willing to replace him for the place of Barnabas, all oh, that's conjecture that Luke doesn't say any of that. But we just read a little bit further in the narrative and say, well, here's some hard evidence that Silvanus is a faithful brother. He's willing to both suffer physically and spiritually alongside of Paul for the sake of the gospel, the very thing John Mark was accused of not doing in Pamphylia. Now, there are a lot of spirit-filled believers in here who I would refer to as faithful people. None of you have been dragged into town square. None of you have been beat by the crowd. None of you have been bludgeoned with sticks. And none of you have been put into stocks in the inner prison after that. And I would refer to lots of people in this room as faithful believers. So are we going to wrap our minds around what it is that Peter is actually saying? You see how there's a distinction between faithful believers and faithful believers? <laughs> if God is going to judge us according to what we do, I'm not saying that they're better, but we're saying there's a distinction. God shows no partiality. Don't get it twisted. Peter says that too. <laughs> but we're willing to draw some lines in the sand and say, this person has gone farther than I have. A lot of us in the room would say, God willing, I'll never have to go that far. And I would say, don't pray that. Pray for strength when the day comes that you do, that you will. That's what I would say to pray for. So Silas, the faithful brother. Having surveyed the book of Acts, I think we've, we've answered our initial questions. However, as modern students of the text, we're still left wondering why Peter mentioned him at all. So we know who he is, we know what he meant, but why did Peter mention him? We're dealing with the who, what, and why. What role did Sylvanus have, if any, in regard to this letter? I mean, that would be the only reason that we could see necessary for Peter to mention him, is if he had a role in the letter of 1 Peter. 
we could clearly define his role in Acts. It's a lot harder to do in the book in the letter that first Peter, that Peter wrote. New Testament scholar Peter Davids writes that the reference to Silvanus can mean one of three things. A, he is the carrier of the letter, i.e. he's the courier. Well, this fits the context, the context of Acts. He's qualified to carry the letter. We saw he carried the letter from the Jerusalem council. B, before we move on to B, let me say one more thing. In our introduction service, we talked about how because we believe that Silas is a qualified courier, we showed the route where he got on the boat in Rome where he sailed east to Asia Minor, where he dismounted. It's an encyclical letter. Remember, he carries the letter to uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. When you look at that, it doesn't make a perfect circle, but it's encyclical in nature. Brings him right back to the port where he would have dismounted. Archaeology teaches us this, and he would have jumped right back on the boat he dismounted from, and he got right back to Rome. So A is a viable option. He's the courier. B, he's the secretary. The Greek term is amanuensis. He's the one who wrote the letter as Peter dictated it. C, Silas is responsible for writing the letter on the behalf of someone else. In this case, that someone would be Peter. Again, if we go back to our first service, I remember Dasha chiming in and being like, in the first century, Matt, pseudonymous literature and pseudepigraphic literature was not a problem. We can look right to the intertestamental period literature. We can see the wisdom of Solomon, and we know that was written well after Solomon's life. We know that that was embraced by early Jews for reading, and we would have no problem saying that's not taboo for their culture. So option C is even viable for the church today. Don't let someone tell you if you hold option C, you're a liberal. <laughs> Take them right back to the Jewish context and be like, well, if, if I guess I'm in good company with those who preceded you, you know? Now listen up, church. I'm not here to give you the answer. Those are your three options. I'm here to remind you that you are a student of the text and it's your responsibility to study the word of God. And it's your responsibility to come to your own conclusion. You need to know what you believe, why you believe, and where to show everybody the evidence for your belief system. You're required to do that. Now, I will share with you my personal opinion, and I pray that it doesn't inform yours. My personal opinion is that option B is the most viable. It's what's referred to as the Sylvanus hypothesis. So if you're a note taker, write that down. You can go home and Google it, and you can find resource material through Google Scholar on the Sylvanus hypothesis. Why is option B the most viable for me? Well, I believe that it helps to resolve the issues of the Greek grammar and syntax. First Peter is the most difficult Greek in the New Testament. So those who don't believe he wrote it, ask how a Galilean fisherman could have accomplished that. Again, go back to our introduction service. We accomplished talking through the points on how that could be possible. The words, words, it's a lot, yeah, more complex. But it's not as complex as with the writings of Josephus and some other early writings. So when we say it's the grammar and the syntax is difficult, we even need to begin to define that when we start talking to people who know what they're talking about, people who are interested in textual criticism. 
It doesn't just help resolve those issues in my mind, it also simultaneously remains historically consistent with the cultural norms of the first century. When you go back and you study first century cultural context, you understand that people employed professional scribes to write letters and contracts and receipts and coupons all the time. <laughs> so why wouldn't Peter do what's most natural in his culture? This might be where Stephanie would raise her hand again and say, because God told her to. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Can't argue. You know? We can just put the data on the table and say, what is it that you're most convinced by? Make your decision. So having done our best to answer the who, what, why, in connection to Sylvanus, we can move on to our next question. Didn't I say we're going to be answer asking a lot of questions today? Are we supposed to read this Literally, this is my next question. Are we supposed to read this literally? I have written briefly to you. It's an epistle. The author said it. They have to mean it or else they're lying, right? He does write a second book, a second letter. You're correct. Let's look at this passage in the ESV and the NLT to see if it helps us. I have written briefly to you, English textual variants, I have written and sent this short letter to you. Are we supposed to understand this literally, everybody? Now, some of us might be thinking, if we consider the length of 1 Peter in the light of the whole New Testament canon... If we consider 1 Peter in the light of the whole New Testament canon, then one might conclude that the letter is relatively short when compared to other letters in the New Testament. There's just one problem with that way of thinking, everybody. There was no New Testament canon in the first century. <laughs> so they wouldn't have been able to make that comparison. Oh, we got our literal modern lenses on then. It becomes extra difficult or even more complicated when we understand that the letter of Hebrews makes the same claim. <laughs> Some of the guys in here are doing a study in Hebrews right now. Let's look at them side by side. I have written briefly to you. I have written to you briefly. Oh no! What do we do with this, saints? My favorite is when people go, this doesn't have any implications on the greater theology of the letter, so it doesn't matter if I read that literally or not. Okay, so you just want to put some red tape out there, jump through a hoop to qualify your level of willful ignorance. <laughs> well, you sit there and you say, read the Bible literally, and then you don't do it. <laughs> it drives me nuts. How many of us are aware that Hebrews is quite lengthy when held against 1 Peter? This is what we call lost in translation, everybody. Things get lost in translation. The church needs to get woke in the real sense of the word. Wake up! <laughs> Believe it or not, this happens a lot more than y'all want to admit it. Joel B. Green reminds us that Peter's closing remarks follow the letter-writing conventions of the world which produced it. Not the world we live in. This statement is not a description of fact. It's a statement of politeness. Culturally speaking, letters in antiquity were supposed to be brief. That's why authors include this line. 
It has zero to do with the actual length. I bring this up because if it's happening in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, we all have to ask, where else is this happening in the Bible and I'm not aware of it? <laughs> oh, and it happens a lot. This is why we say context determines meaning, everybody. Context determines meaning. <laughs> and when we say that, we mean that in the very literal sense. <laughs> You have to look at the context. Don't proof text me through the Bible, bro. Because I'm going to go home. I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to make it my job to find out if you're teaching the truth or if you're lying. That's so why I attach a reference list to the end of every single one of my manuscripts so that if someone wants to come, I can say, here are the qualified scholars who have spoken on the matter. I stand on their shoulders. Go find me proof that outweighs the proof that I found. You guys pay me to do a job here. I want to do it well. I want to honor God and I want to honor God's people. I don't want to stand before him one day and he's going to be like, you punted every sermon. I'll be like, oh, do I still get to come in? <laughs> Moving on to Peter's purpose statement. One might look at the purpose statement and say, what more can be said? All that I have written, all of it, <laughs> this is the true grace of God. You have one responsibility, church. Stand firm in it. Amen. This is where I love to sit with my progressive brothers and bring them right to this passage and say, hey, honestly, dude, are you doing this? Or are you looking for a way out? We are clear that we don't need to take a literal interpretation around here to everything. But that doesn't mean you get to deconstruct everything. <laughs> know the difference. He's got a purpose statement in the close of his letter. If anything is worth memorizing, it's this. So that when you're troubled, you can go to the text and say, This is the true grace of God. Lord, take me to a place that is going to give me encouragement. I want to stand firm. Sit. It's not rocket science. Thomas Schreiner writes to remind us that a failure to stand, he's my favorite Calvinist, by the way. I'm not a Calvinist, but Thomas Schreiner is my favorite Calvinist. Listen to this. He writes to remind us that failure to stand constitutes apostasy. And those who apostatize will face destruction on the last day. I would love to sit down and say, talk to me about how you hold that intention with the perseverance of the saints, brother. Make it make sense to me. I really think he's just trying to be honest here. Is it possible for spirit-filled believers to fall into sin? Yes. Where he and I divide is not on can one lose, but can one rebel? Willfully rebel. Those are two different things. You got to read the opposing side of the aisle. And when they write something, you got to be like, they did a good job right here. 
I think it's worth repeating. Peter said it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. I don't have a corner on the truth. Thomas Schreiner is much more brilliant than I am. I'm reading his material to help carry me through this. I could be wrong. He could be right. I'd love to sit down and talk with him. It's not about trying to change his mind. It's about learning. Thomas, help me understand how you hold this intention with one of the core tenets of your system. Let him explain, listen, and say, okay, you helped me. God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Are we humble, church? I believe that if Peter were here this morning, he wouldn't be asking us or quizzing us on soteriology. (laughs) I believe that if Peter were here today, he would say, AC squared, do you believe the words of my letter are sufficient? Because when your pastor opened the sermon, he said, you believe that God has given you all that you need for life and godliness. Everyone was shaking their head, yes. So I believe that if Peter were here, he would say, if you believe that the words of my letter are sufficient, start living like it right now. Your day is not tomorrow. And it doesn't come in an hour. Start now. Stand firm. I have so much garbage and baggage in my life. Repent. Turn. Stand firm. It's not rocket science. That's what I think Peter would say if he were in the room with us right now. Like the church is arguing about what these days? The church is arguing over what? How much ink has been spilled on these topics? I think his heart would break. I think he would say the practical things. You guys are sidestepping the practical to talk about stuff that belongs in the ivory tower. I want to know how you're living your life, Christian. Are you loving your neighbor? Yes, tell me what that looks like on a practical sense. Well, I stand out there and I tell him how jacked up he is and that he's going straight to hell if he doesn't know Jesus. That's an odd description of love. Well, if I saw someone in a house and it was burning down, the bigger sin would be on me not going in there and being like, why are you sitting in here? Your house is burning down. Not everybody's house is burning down. Oh, they're all spiritually dead. But how long did it take you to come to faith? (laughs) How quickly we forget that God has rescued us from our own damnation. I think Peter would keep it very practical if you were here. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? The letter conclusion contains two separate greetings. Two greetings. Well, that's not important. Well, it kind of is because one is attached to she who is at Babylon and the second one comes from Mark, my son. Here comes a great question for our fundamentalist literalist brothers. (laughs) How do y'all read this? (laughs) Oh, I'd love to get Ken Ham in the room right now. Like, bro, keep a steady hermeneutic and unpack this one for me. 
<laughs> God forgive me, I shouldn't have said his name. How are we supposed to understand this, church? Like, these are legit questions. You guys are probably inside like, man, I just wish Matt would end. It's almost 1130. I wish he would shut up. Or you're like, oh my gosh, I don't think critically enough for the Bible. That's what was going on in my mind all week long. I'm your pastor, and I was sitting there going, I don't think critically enough about the Bible. God forbid that I ever sit down at my desk and go, I'm ready to preach because I already know what this says. God forbid. How are we supposed to understand this? The phrase, she who is at Babylon, lacks the Greek term, ekklesia. That's the word for church. Now we have a conundrum. Because the sentence doesn't mention the church in the Greek. And this conundrum has given rise to two different interpretations. She is either a reference to Peter's wife or one of his female co-workers in the Lord, or it's a reference to the Christian community. What is it? She is one of two things. Now, I tend to agree with Joel Green, who writes that it would be strange for Peter to mention Sylvanus and Mark by name, but not his wife or the co-worker. That would be an inconsistency for me. I would find that strange that he's comfortable to name these two, but then cryptically wants to refer to a wife or a female co-worker. Paul has no problem including female names in his greetings and in his, in, in, in his letters. That's, that's a great way to think of it. Maybe they did. I don't know because I wasn't there. I'm on one side of the phone call here reading the letter going, what was going on on the other side of the phone call? The fact that Peter mentioned Sylvanus and Mark by name alone, that fact alone leads me to embrace the latter interpretation that he's speaking to the church or he's speaking in reference to the church. While others who hold my position would defer to 2 John, verse 1 and 3, and they would say, read these verses in the context of what Peter says, and you'll see that it is the very same thing, and it refers clearly in John's letter to the church. They're both written in Greek, so they would make the horizontal argument. Once again, I'd like to remind you that in the end, it's your responsibility to weigh the data and come to a conclusion. I can't do that for you. If you end up on the side of the aisle in this church believing that she is a reference to Peter's wife, you're going to be welcome here. Now we can return to soteriology. That doesn't affect your salvation. <laughs> Put your faith in Jesus and we'll argue about the details until he comes and sets us all straight. Half of us in here love to argue. And the wives of those men hate that the men argue. <laughs> It's true. Callan was like, get out of my house. <laughs> get out. You and your buddies are stupid. That is not true. That is totally true. Oh, that's totally true. Rob was there. Other wives, other wives in here are like, if my friends ever talked to me that way, I wouldn't be their friend. <laughs> it happens. It happens. Look, some of us like to get in the arena and duke it out. You know why we... 
You know why we like to get in the ring and duke it out? Because we actually care. Exactly, Tom. Thank you. We actually care. We want to be good disciples. <laughs> Once again, Callan's always getting thrown under the bus. That's what happens when you agree to be a, pe- a preacher's wife. I got to use stories, babe. People remember stories. <laughs> She's right. I'm wrong. There you go. Right? That's... There you go. Oh, Jenna calling her out. I love it. Clap like a, yeah, calling me out. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's good that we are here in the house of the Lord today figuring these things out together. I don't want to do this alone. I've been in my office all week thinking, I wonder what the church is going to do when I present this information. Some people are going to be repulsed. Some people are going to double down. Some people are going to respond by saying, oh man, I have, you've given me food for thought. And we have to deal with all of that and more. What about the second greeting, the one that comes from Mark? Well, now we have to ask who Mark is. And what does Peter mean when he refers to him as my son? Is this a literal statement? <laughs> you see how when we start to shine light on the dark corners of the realities of life, we say, what you say doesn't actually line up with what you read. It doesn't line up with how you interpret what you read either, but you like to fly this flag like you're the literalist and you've got everybody else bent down and you're calling us liberals. <laughs> Don't work like that. Don't work like that. Timothy's not Paul's son. Thank you. That's a great... So these... Not, I'll just skip this whole portion in the text here. <laughs> I love it, though. You're thinking, like, what does the rest of the Bible have to say? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of places where we actually don't take it literally, and we're perfectly fine. But then when it comes to a pet rock of mine that I love, I definitely have cornered the market on that one. <laughs> okay (laughs) I know because I've been there William Barclay writes that if we take she who is chosen to be Peter's wife then Mark could literally be Peter's son we do have evidence that Peter was married and he only tells us the first of however many names he may have That's great. The only word it says is Marcus. It's the Greek translation of the word that we get in the English mark. So again, Peter only gives us these individuals' names. He doesn't give us any details. We have to ask, what's really going on here? Culturally speaking, my son fits the teacher-disciple relationship which Nathan pointed out with Paul and Timothy. I would say it applies to Titus as well, right? Would we agree? Yeah. So we're asking what's going on here. Culturally speaking, my son sounds like a term of endearment or affection that can be applied outside of a familial bond. Church history has always closely connected Peter with Mark. Craig Keener notes that the majority of scholars regard the Mark of 1 Peter to be the same individual associated with Paul and the Jerusalem church throughout the New Testament. That means that this Mark, according to most scholars, is the John Mark that we read about in Acts earlier today. The one that went with Barnabas, not with Paul. 
the one that quit in Pamphylia. However, Foy Valentine reminds us, church, that's just an assumption. He says, don't plant your flag here and back yourself into a corner with no escape. It's just an assumption. Joel Green highlights the reality that Peter only offers us a name, Marcus. There's the answer to your question. This name was quite common throughout the Roman world, which means that my son could be taken literally or maybe it could be taken figuratively when referring to John Mark. For those of us who take this to be a figurative term, we would default to the position based on the data What's most probable is that he's speaking of John Mark, the one credited with writing the second canonical gospel. Answering the who, what, and why question to who is Mark, what did Peter mean when he referred to him as my son, and why is he in the letter, it's not as simple as we think, church. It's not. Because if you're going to plant your flag and you're going to say with Cartesian certainty that you know that this is John Mark, they're going to pull out Eusebius and they're going to be like, it's actually not clear in church history which one it is. And we're going to have a problem with the argument that we've presented. It's possible that he could be referring to someone else. That's what we would tell the person who disagrees with us. It's possible but based on the data, what's probable? Again, I'm not interested in being right and winning the argument. I'm interested in the truth, and the data has to guide me into the truth. That's how you study. You have the Spirit. He's not going to abandon you in the process of studying. He's given you a ton of resources. We talk about this all the time. Frank Turek. You have more access to all of the data in the world now than any of the scribes, rabbis, and scholars in the past. Be responsible with the access to information. So what's probable is a great question. Not what's possible. That's a great question too. But once you find out what's possible, in the midst of the possibilities, ask what's most probable. How about the term Babylon? Brandon said he's been waiting for this one. Yes, absolutely. Do we, like the famed church reformer John Calvin, take this to be the literal city of Babylon in Mesopotamia? That's what John Calvin says. Maybe we hold the view that this was the Babylon of Egypt because there was a Babylon of Egypt. It was near ancient Misr, and it's known today uh, as Old Cairo. This place in Egypt was established by Babylonian refugees from Assyria. However, by 2425 BC, it had been repurposed as a military post for the Roman army. Some folks actually argue that Egypt is the geographical location of the letter's origin. And they would say that this is the Babylon that Peter's referring to. Maybe you reject both of these interpretations because, like me, you believe that the Apostle Peter consistently and confidently drew on Old Testament tradition. I mean, we've proven that over and over and over again in this Bible study. 
In the Hebrew scriptures, Babylon was representative of those who opposed God. It was a literal place, and it also represented those who opposed God. In the Hebrew scriptures, that's a reality. As modern students of the text, we should understand that the mere mention of Babylon constitutes another reminder that believers both then and now were exiles in our present situation. Anybody waiting to get to their true home? Anybody looking forward to that? Anybody suffering harm and need encouragement so that they can take one more step on the journey to getting there? Anybody trying to run that race like the Apostle Paul? Anybody setting their focus on the author? Read this letter. And you'll find your source of encouragement. If this is the proper interpretation that it's figurative and not literal, then Peter has once again effectively communicated that we are to stand firm in the face of opposition as we rest in the truth that God will one day vindicate his people. As God was faithful to restore Israel to Zion, so he will faithfully exalt his bride. This is the reality that has brought peace and will continue to bring peace to Christians until Christ returns. Let's close it out, everybody. Let's read the last verse in the letter. The kiss of love. The kiss of love. I love it. It's a sign of affection. It's not erotic, but it is familial. Do we know the difference, everybody? Do we know the difference? I really would like to get some of the men into a room and ask them if they know the difference between affection and erotic expression. That's right. That's right. We're going to test some people today. <laughs> or not. Or not. <laughs> Look, the kiss of love, the kiss of love mirrors a practice that was common in the ancient Near East and is still common throughout the East today. I know this. I've been to Iraq. I've spent time in Iraq. You know how you greet one another? Salam alaikum, alaikum salam. Doesn't matter. That's how you do it. So honor and respect demands that in that culture. Been to Afghanistan, it's the same. Salam alaikum, alaikum salam. You don't have a choice. Anybody been to Spain? Paul wanted to go there, you know that, right? You read Romans? Anybody been to Italy? What about Greece? I'm trying to steer us to the east. <laughs> yeah, Spanish influence. How do they greet one another there? How do they say goodbye there? Ciao. Right? There's no way around it. The injuncture, and that's Thomas Shiner's word, the injunction to greet one another in this manner 
is commonly rejected throughout the church in the West for one reason only. And you all just proved it. It's not culturally acceptable. Period. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we just have to deal with it. It's true that for centuries, the kiss of love was integral and it was a precious part of Christian fellowship. Have you ever heard the name Tertullian? Tertullian asks, what prayer is complete from which a holy kiss is divorced? Augustine, you ever heard that name? Yes. A man, I wish he knew how to do Greek because he has messed up a whole lot of y'all's theology on original sin. <laughs> but we'll hold that for another day. Augustine writes, when Christians were about to communicate, they demonstrated their inward peace by the outward kiss. Justin Martyr, you ever heard that name? Justin Martyr states that the kiss was preceded by prayer for the gift of peace and of unfeigned love. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Justin Martyr writes, when we have ceased from prayer, we salute one another with a kiss. The context of Justin, Mar uh, Justin Martyr's statement is interesting when you read it in its entirety because you see that when they, uh, when they have ceased from prayer and they salute one another with a kiss, the very next thing that they do is practice in the Lord's table. So the kiss is a sign of acceptance into the family. They read this literally. <laughs> Cyril of Jerusalem states that the kiss was preceded by prayer. For the gift of peace and of unfeigned love, undefiled by hypocrisy or deceit, and that it was a sign that our souls are mingled together and have banished all remembrance of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. You know how they proved it? With the kiss of love. How many people in here have been wronged by someone in here? So what's up, church? What's our excuse? Hopefully we'll stop making one and we'll stop touting one-liners from a soapbox that read really, really well on Twitter but don't actually uh, mimic or mirror the way that we live our own lives. I'm not comfortable with another man kissing my wife. That's why my church doesn't do that. It would be weird if adults were expected to kiss children that don't belong to them. I actually agree. I don't have any kids. An act such as this could cause a brother to stumble. Lust is an issue for the church today, so we're not going to go around kissing each other. What's our excuse? <laughs> we could just be honest and say this one's tied to culture. <laughs> we could. At least for us, it is this far along in history. I'd like you guys to exegete your reason why we don't in any of the churches in Anchorage that are Western in their culture. <laughs> I'd like you to exegete why. We need to learn to be honest, church. This one hits. I've been the guy on the soapbox. And I've lots of times been like, wow, I was wrong about that. I was wrong. 
It's the same stupid argument when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples and he says, I have left you this example. Do this as I have done for you. And people go, Jesus doesn't really expect me to wash other people's feet. I was just going to say, one time my wife washed my feet. Right after I graduated from college, she did it to honor me. And it was life-changing. So before you think you know better, before you canonize your culture as better than other cultures, try it before you actually just deny it. We've got to learn to be honest. Again, I'm addressing this because we need to shine the light on this kind of stuff, church. We can't be writing checks that are you-know-whats can't cash. Because there's going to be a smart atheist out there. And if we don't train up in here, he's going to take you out. And you're going to be really angry that you got showed up by someone. You know how I know? Because I've been that person. (laughs) I've been deceived that I need to be right and not pursue truth. The wonderful expression of love has been reinterpreted to fit our cultural context, and we just need to be okay with that. Our hugs and our high fives, our handshakes and our fist bumps, that's how we choose to remain obedient to this command. That's what we tell people. This is culturally bound. And when we enter into other people's cultures, like I did in Iraq and in Afghanistan, I submit myself to their culture. And we would say to the same person that's coming in here trying to slob up on everybody's wife, you are going to submit to our culture too. Or else we're going to have a problem. (laughs) Just saying. You know? The final line in the letter functions as a corporate blessing to the bride of Christ. The backdrop of Peter's language is rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. It's here that Peter prays for peace, for the peace of God that transcends all understanding, for the true peace that Jesus said you would experience when he said, be not, I just had a brain fart, be not, what does he say? He says, don't fear, right? Don't fear the world, don't be terrified by the world, for you will experience tribulation, but I have overcome the world. What is the passage? I can't think of it right now. Anybody? Come on, help your pastor out. This is going on YouTube. <laughs> be not overcome by the world, I think is what he says. Do not be overcome. Right? And then he says later on, my peace I leave with you. Peace is what Peter prays for in the close of his letter. I said earlier in the sermon that it was my hope that this sermon would stoke our love for the Word of God. If anything I said today made you angry, go there. (laughs) Study. Come and correct me. I'm open to that. I I am not above it. I've been a Christian for how long, Rob? Like about a decade, plus or minus a couple years. First couple years were even questionable. (laughs) 
we planted this church two years ago. Like, we have to exercise humility. We have to stand in front of the camera and we have to say, nobody knows it all. We study to show ourselves approved. We do the best that we can. And when we learn new information exists, we shift when needed. That's what we do. So my hope is that today's study stoked the fire in your heart to love God's word, love the people of his word. Who is Sylvanus? Who is John Mark? Is there other places I can find information out about them? Matt didn't do an exhaustive teaching today. The places in the text, what do I know about Babylon? Can I plot it on a map? I hope that we learned the value of closing remarks today. They're important. So often we get to the end of the letter and we're just like, ah, well, closing remarks, whatever. No, we can't do that. They're no different. The words are no different than the wonderful words in the wisdom literature. The authors of the text are doing something when they write. Every single stroke of the pen has a purpose. The question is, do we care? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings and queens to search those things out. Yeah, hit me. That's the passage. John what? John 16.33 for the YouTube audience who wants to shame me in the comments. (laughs) I asked the question is do we care? That's That's what we have to settle in our hearts, church. Do we care? How much time are we spending with God in God's word with the people of God, discussing the word of God, praying with the people of God? Do we care? Do we care what other people think about the word of God? Or do we think we've cornered the market on truth and we're just waiting to interrupt them and tell them where they're wrong? You know, like, it's a great question that we have to ask ourselves. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Saints, it's my hope as we begin to close in prayer and the worship team and the prayer team comes up, it's my desire that we would be like kings and queens who have a like a hard, hard conviction to search out the truths of Scripture and that we would steer clear of hitting cruise control and just flying along like it don't matter. Father, thank you for the text of Scripture. Thank you for the closing words of this letter. Thank you for the reality that your Spirit moves in our midst, that you gave a conviction to me before I even realized what it was so that we could actually spotlight the reality that the final conclusion matters. God, I pray that as spirit-filled believers, we would extend grace to one another in the midst of our disagreements, that we would seek to understand one another where we differ, that we would be patient and long-suffering and forgiving with one another. God, help us to image you well in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.